0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is John Colhane, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Family Health Law and Policy Institute at Widener University Delaware Law School. We will discuss his article, The Right to Say, But Not to Do, Balancing First Amendment Freedom of Expression with the Anti-Discrimination Imperative. So welcome to
1: the podcast, John. Great, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Um, I really enjoyed reading your brief and lively article, um, and I was wondering if you could start for listeners who may not be familiar with the background controversy by um, telling people a little bit about the sort of issues at stake in the masterpiece bake shop case, mm-hmm. how you came to them, sort of what like what your perspective on them was and how it might have been different from some of the other people commenting on on the case and sort of where things kind of stand at the moment before we kind of launch into a more kind of in the weeds discussion of of your article.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So for many years, I'd been thinking and writing about the question of marriage equality and related issues around LGBT rights. And uh, I quickly uh, realized once the great victory in in the marriage equality uh, realm had been achieved in 2015 with Obergefell, that the questions were not going to stop. For example, you know, many people Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, where I live, uh, pointed out that a person could get married on a Saturday and then come into work the following Monday and get fired because there's no law protecting against that in uh, Pennsylvania. So uh, there were still these issues out there. And the first question is, how do you protect people? And the answer, obviously, is through laws prohibiting, you know, sort of anti-gay, uh, bias in the workplace and housing and other places. So, uh, you know, until you have that, uh, you don't even get into the conflict between, uh, someone's right to, uh, exclude someone from a business and the, you know, gay or lesbian person's right to access that business in the first place. So you have that sort of, uh, foregrounding of the issue. Um, and then I noticed, uh, when, uh, the whole issue of marriage equality was being uh, decided and, you know, argued back and forth. There were some legal scholars, uh, and here I'm thinking of Robin Fretwell Wilson in, in particular, who were saying, well, we should have marriage equality, but there are a lot of services and issues around marriage that make opponents uncomfortable, and we should let them opt out. So, for example, They said, uh, you know, if people had an objection to a certain kind of marriage and they didn't specify same sex marriage, but that's what they meant. I mean, they really weren't talking about, you know, interracial marriages, for example. Um, They said that, you know, a baker or a florist or someone like that should be able to opt out of uh, providing services relating to uh, gay weddings, even in states that had laws that would otherwise have protected against that kind of, you know, action. So those were the things that kind of interested me, you know, what are the laws that uh, protect members of the LGBT community and how might people try to, you know, sort of get around those laws or try to devise exceptions or compromises uh, when it came to uh, gay rights. And I think it's no coincidence that the cases that are generating the most interest although not all of the interest are cases where the uh business or or place of a public uh a public accommodation is you know is turning people away uh in relation to uh, marriage so you've got the masterpiece uh, a bake shop case where uh, Jack Phillips says, I'm not going to you know, bake a cake for a gay wedding. You had another case involving a florist who had a long-term, uh, very good relationship with a gay couple, and she would sell them flowers and make arrangements for all kinds of things. But when they told her they wanted her to do arrangements for their wedding, she refused and said, I won't do that. So you know, these are not the only cases in which uh, the conflict surfaces. But I think uh, it's it's not coincidental that these are the most sort of high profile, um, and so I came to it from from kind of that direction, if you will.
0: Yeah. So maybe you could you could say a little something about sort the doctrinal. Issues sure. behind the masterpiece, Cape Chop Taste. And I, I'm thinking in particular, this sort of distinction or continuum, perhaps is a better way of putting it, between kind of speech and expressive conduct. Because I, yeah. I think part of what you're getting at in the paper is like the the, the sort of the, the way that that continuum creates a difficulty. F- kind of in practice for applying free speech and First Amendment related concepts?
1: Yeah. So I think a good way to think about it is we can take this, uh, you know, sort of do a hypothetical closely related to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and use that maybe as kind of a stalking horse to explore this a little bit. So, uh, you know, if Jack Phillips had instead stood on this ground, well, I will bake the cake, but I won't inscribe it, you know, sort of I don't know, happy gay wedding or something, like <laughs> that, right? Yeah. I think no one would have said, I hope no one would have said that, you know, he must be forced, you know, to do that, right? So when you're talking about speech at its core, uh, that's where the First Amendment uh, most clearly applies. Now, there's a whole range of expressive conduct, and I think you're exactly right to call it a continuum. Um, from things that we would all say, you know, there should be some protection there if it's core political speech, for example, in uh, the case which kind of set up the standard for these expressive uh, speech cases, O'Brien, the case involved a guy who was uh, arrested for uh, burning his draft card. Well, that's clearly speech that should be protected. You're you're, uh, protesting the government. Um, and, uh, he's doing it to send a very specific message. The problem with it is, uh, as you move away from things that are really clearly political and expressive, um, it's hard to know sort of where the stopping point is. And so I'm very suspicious of these, uh, expressive or symbolic, uh, speech cases. Um, you know, you could say anything as expressive or symbolic and, uh, so the idea that, uh, baking a cake is, uh, an act of expressive conduct, um, while there's something intuitively plausible about that, um, you know, the idea that if he's making the same exact cake, right, save the inscription, which I've already said, uh, should be protected speech. If he's making the same cake for a gay couple as he would for a straight couple, Uh, It's hard for me to understand why uh, that speech ought to be uh, protected, particularly when it comes at the expense of a couple who otherwise has a right under, in this case, Colorado law, you know, to access these goods and services. Um, So that's sort of where I see the issue. And I think the Supreme Court has not been clear or really, to be honest, even very coherent about when expressive or symbolic speech is protected or even when it is expressive or symbolic speech. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, The Barnes case from 1991 that involved uh, nude dancing, right? And the question was whether uh, a city could Uh, pass an ordinance barring new dancing or whether it could require the dancers uh, to wear, you know, covering stuff. I think it was G-strings and pasties, you know, sort of elevated discourse here. So uh, so, uh, the court says, well, we think this is expressive conduct, but at the outer reaches of the First Amendment, because you're, you know, you're dancing um, and it's not Obscenity, so it's protected and it's expressive, but we think it's uh, weak. Um, And then they said, "But there's a there's a substantial government interest in uh, morality." Um, But you know, it it it's not clear to me that that's anything besides an aesthetic judgment on the part of the court um and so in my article i kind of deconstruct the expressive uh, conduct uh, piece to the extent that i could
0: yeah so maybe i mean maybe you could you could spend a couple minutes just talking about the sort of the 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 test as it were that the supreme court at least in theory has developed sure. to sure. deal with the concept of expressive contact and conduct and why um I think, as is so often the case, it turns out it doesn't really seem to do the work the court wants it to.
1: Yeah. So in the O'Brien case, the court chins uh, up this four-part test, right? It says uh, the law must, first of all, be within the, the constitutional competence of the government. Usually that's not an issue. Um, and it must further an important or substantial government interest, Um which is the third part, uh, unrelated to the suppression of free expression. Um, and the fourth part is the incidental restriction on alleged first amendment freedom must be no greater than necessary, you know, to the furtherance of that interest. So those are the four, uh, uh, parts of the O'Brien test. The interesting thing is the court doesn't consistently use the O'Brien test. Um, so for example uh in the case involving uh the uh, gay and lesbian uh, group that wanted to march in the Boston St. Patrick's Day parade uh the court said well they could be banned by this private group because you marching in a parade is expressive right but the court didn't even apply the O'Brien test and I think if it if it had um you know, it might have come out differently and said, well, there's an important, you know, an important uh, government interest here in, you know, allowing you know, gay and lesbian people to operate in the public square in the same way that you know, everybody else can. But the court didn't even look at O'Brien. And, and, and so I think it's a test that surfaces, uh, you know, willy nilly.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean it's it seems like almost like a like a quote unquote test that serves to kind of camouflage a certain sort of ad hocism
1: almost. I think that's right and I think, you know, uh the court um you know, it's no coincidence I think that in, you know, uh, cases involving gay rights that you know, the test kind of comes and goes or is employed in ways that have in the past usually led to the Uh, you know, gay rights uh, group uh, losing. Right. So you've got the fair case, which was uh, for those that don't uh, recall, uh, was the case where uh, law schools uh, were asserting their First Amendment rights to uh, bar uh, recruiters uh, military uh, recruiters from campuses because of the don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, And there the court, uh, you know, found O'Brien and said, uh, you know, the incidental restriction on First Amendment freedom is, you know, is pretty incidental here because we don't really think that uh, refusing to host uh, military is expressive. Well, why not, right? I mean, why is marching in a parade expressive, but not this? Uh, and then the courts, anyway, it's the military, and there's a substantial right government interest in recruiting for the military, uh, and that overcomes whatever you know, restriction on first amendment freedom, even if there is one, which we think there isn't, um, you know, and the court wasn't even interested in right. Uh, any alternatives that, uh, the law schools were suggesting, they basically said, well, those are not relevant. It seems to me those are exactly relevant because you're talking about the restriction and, uh, you're talking about right ways of accommodating a uh, competing interest. So, I do think there's a certain amount of ad hocism here, obviously.
0: Yeah, and and, I mean, and I was wondering if you could you could spend a few minutes kind of talking about that, not just from the perspective of the court, but in a weird way, I almost feel like there's a certain amount of ad hocism to some of the alternative proposals that have been advanced by. Other, other law professors uh, and other people sort of engaging in this conversation. Yeah. I, I was maybe kind of reflect on some of those a little bit, describe maybe what some of them look like and and some of your, I think rather trenchant criticisms of them well, in, yeah, so, in your paper.
1: Right. So, you know, one of them is the attempt just to draw this line. Right. And, uh, you know, and then just decide whether, uh, cake baking falls on the side of expressive conduct or it doesn't. So one is just to do this uh, sort of line drawing and then say if it's considered expressive conduct, it should be protected. But if it's not, then it shouldn't be. First of all, that doesn't answer the question, because even if it is expressive conduct, you have this obviously strong Uh, you know, competing interest on the other side, uh, which is for people to be able to access the services. So you had people saying, well, a photographer, that's expressive, but a cake baker is not. Um, And then you had this bizarro exchange, uh, when the Supreme Court was listening to the arguments in the uh, Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop case, where the court got into places where I think no Supreme court should ever go talking about whether a chef was the same as a, a cake baker. Right. And, uh, the attorney for, uh, Jack Phillips said, well, no, those are different. And then he proceeded to try to go on and, uh, justice Kagan stopped him cold and said, well, wait a minute, you know, baking a cake is expressive, but you know, being a chef and, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot in the presentation, And then they got into sandwich artists and makeup artists. Um, And I thought that was one of my triggers to think, you know, this is crazy, right? So one attempt has been to kind of draw this line. Another uh, thing that you sometimes see is this attempt to kind of restrict these expressive uh, conduct, you know, I guess, privileges to cases involving celebrations of same-sex weddings right gay or lesbian weddings and you know those to me just seem flat out i don't know unworkable uh you know i had this exchange with uh robin fretwell uh, wilson whom i greatly respect as a legal scholar and she was nice enough to indulge me and you know sort of we went back and forth on i said let's say somebody goes into a florist and uh you know, the florist uh, prepares an arrangement. uh, And then at the end, the person who wants to buy the flowers says, can you, you know, write a card that says for Bill and George, the happiest couple I know, can the florist then uh, refuse? And in her response, you know, she was, she was, internally inconsistent, to be honest with you. First, she says, well, you know, if it's for the wedding, then they then they could refuse. She says, but for me, it would have significance that the flowers are not to be used in the wedding, but are to be brought as a gift to the wedding. So maybe that makes it different. And I said, well, you know, that's just unworkable as a legal standard, right? And And, and part of what I was trying to do in my piece was think about what actually could work here as a legal standard? What could we do that would recognize? I mean, I'm not blind to the, you know, interest of uh, Jack Phillips. I understand his position, um, but in my view, it can't be used as a trump card to, you know, sort of kick people out or or not you know, do the services that they would otherwise be entitled to just because they're gay. And his argument is, I'm not refusing to serve members of the LGBT community or to make cakes. I just won't do them for this specific purpose. But, you know, what if they then said, I want an anniversary cake, or, you know, I want something that, you know, relates to, you know, my adoption of a child or something. Um, Or if a kid comes in and says, Uh, you know, I would like, uh, you know, a birthday cake for my dad. Uh, This actually happened in my family, not the rejection, (laughs) but, you know, my daughter going in and, you know, having a cake made up, uh, you know, for my spouse's uh, birthday. And what if she had said, uh, you know, this is for, you know, one of my dads and the person, you know, might then have said, well, sorry, I don't believe in gay adoption. I'm not going to do the cake. I mean, it's crazy. Mm
0: -hmm. So, Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, my approach was uh, you know a little bit different, which is uh, you know, to recognize the the interest that the baker has and people similarly situated um, and to accommodate that interest without having to get into the craziness of what's expressive conduct and what isn't uh, recognize the interest and try to... Uh, a devise and accommodation that will in most cases I think, prevent the conflict from happening in the first place, so I could talk about that if we're ready
0: yeah, absolutely and you know, and this is what I really thought was fascinating about about your piece because I think one of the things that's often missing from this conversation is that you know you're only at step one when you talk about conduct. Being expressive because it seems yes. to me that at the, at the end of the day, what we really care about is meaning, not just expressiveness. Right. And and I think that that's where your intervention really changes or kind of reframes what's what's at stake in an interesting way. Yeah. So yeah. To, maybe.
1: Yeah. So I have to tell you, it, it's you know when I've gone to a conferences to, you know, mention this, uh, you know, most of the conferences I'm. I'm attending or, you know, LGBT rights stuff. And people are not exactly enthusiastic with my idea um, because they think it could lead to the very thing I'm trying to prevent. So so let me explain what it is. And, you know, I'd be interested in uh, people's reactions to it. So, uh, and maybe a little background would be useful. So I was sort of thinking about this and, uh, we had a case here in Philadelphia some years ago. You know, Philadelphia is the home of the cheesesteak, right? And the subsequent angioplasty, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's not the healthiest thing. But uh, but there are these two competing uh, cheesesteak places in South Philly. Uh, and uh, one of them uh, decided that, well, the, the guy was, you know, uh, this Italian American it was, I think a couple of generations in the U S, uh, wasn't crazy about the influx of Spanish speaking people to the neighborhood. Um, and so he put up a sign, uh, in the window of the, of the cheesesteak place saying, this is America when ordering speak English. Um, and of course, this led to, you know, a great outcry and the competing, I mean, people sort of sorted themselves out, right? People went to the competing cheesesteak place if they were offended. On the other hand, people that agreed with his message went there. And the guy was dragged before the Philadelphia Civil Rights Commission. Um, and they were, you know, understandably accusing him of ethnic bias, which is uh, prohibited under Philadelphia uh, law. Uh and they couldn't prove the case. And the reason they couldn't prove the case was that uh, the ACLU, I think, and other uh, maybe other organizations sent people to the uh, cheesesteak place, and they were served, even though they tried to speak Spanish. So what happened was they would go up and speak Spanish, and the people that ran it said, we don't understand, and they would s- – sort of give them a standard cheesesteak if they didn't understand it. So the argument was that they didn't, you know, discriminate that they were just expressing a point of view, which they have a right to do under the first amendment. And my, my proposed uh, accommodation or solution uh, is a little bit different, but it kind of is inspired by that. So, uh, you know, I think when you put something like that in the window, you're basically saying, don't eat here, right? That's what it basically says. Please speak English. Yeah. And of course you can send, uh, you know, dummies up there, right. You know, to sort of test it. But, you know, to me that kind of misses the point because what about the people who aren't dummies who didn't go up there, right. Who felt like, you know, they were not welcome. So you need something more, uh, sort of less antagonistic, less confrontational. So, you know, my idea is, uh, you know, Jack Phillips is a religious guy, right? So he could say something like, uh, you know, on his website, for example, you know, traditional values cake shop, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, I believe marriage is union of one man and one woman. I don't see any reason, speaking of speech as opposed to expressive conduct, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be able to do that. And then what happens, I mean, you're going to get a market segmentation, which, you know, makes some people uncomfortable, but the truth is markets are segmented anyway, right? People shop at Walmart, they shop at Whole Foods and they make decisions on whether Amazon is a force for good or evil, you know, discuss, right? But, but, uh, you know, Somebody like the uh, plaintiffs in the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop case could have looked at that and said, you know, this isn't the place where we want to get our cake. Nobody wants somebody crabby, right, or who doesn't uh, support your wedding to be making the cake. And, uh, you know, it's a little uncomfortable, And uh, but if it's on your website – or if it's in a place where people aren't embarrassed in kind of a face-to-face transaction, you know, I think that's a way to take some of the heat out of this and to at least reduce the number of conflicts uh, greatly. So that's why my article is the right to say, but not to do. So you can express your views and make them clear. You know, if you're a, a bed and breakfast and you're covered by a public accommodations law that says, you know, you have to allow all, you know, all couples to, you know, it'd be a marriage issue and it could be an LGBT issue. It could be an interracial couple. You have to allow, you know, any, you know, uh, two people to stay at your place, married or not, gay, straight, etc. If you are, you know, traditionalist that thinks marriage is the union of a man or a woman and uh, a woman, and you might even be an alumnus of Bob Jones university that doesn't believe in interracial marriage You can write whatever you want on your website as long as it's not um, the kind of statement that is likely to be interpreted as a disinvitation to utilize the business. And I think the devil is going to be in the details and trying to work that out. Um, And that's why I suggest in the article uh, what might be a salutary development would be for – you know, state legislatures to come up with kind of safe harbor language that you could use um, to express, you know, views on particular issues. And then if you wanted to go beyond the, the safe harbor, you know, you'd be on your own, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah and I mean, what and thing what, and what, and what, 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 what really, really struck me about, about your, 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 your article. article was that you, you talk about, essentially you propose a a solution that requires more speech rather than rather than less so in other words it seems to me like what's happening sort of in the status quo is we have a circumstance where people you know are engaging in expressive conduct and what they're expressing is the belief or discriminatory beliefs effectively is what they're expressing but they don't really want to put voice to them and essentially what you're saying is if you want to discriminate you have to you have to say so yeah well, right you have to yeah. Say, yeah, well, <laughs> you have to explore and that and we well, like, don't
1: and, have to and, say and, and, so but 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 if you don't then you can't refuse i mean you you sort of make it you know look all of these decisions have consequences right so you know if you uh don't say anything and wait for the couple to show up. Well, then a number of things could happen. You could refuse and everyone's kind of embarrassed, right? And it's difficult, or you could uh, you could agree and not like it and maybe do a, not such a good job on the cake. You know, so I'm thinking, uh, you know, uh, whatever can be done to take some of the heat out of it. So I, you know, I think this is a case, exactly as you say, where more speech uh, might be indicated. There was one of the amicus briefs where, uh, you know, the folks who were uh, defending Jack Phillips, one of the arguments was they shouldn't have to put themselves out there as, uh, you know, sort of uh, being opposed to uh, LGBT equality or uh, gay marriage. And it's like, well, your solution is worse in a way. Right? You only find out uh, when you get there. Um, and, you know, there could be economic consequences to, you know, putting something like that on the web uh, or or posting it in your window, I suppose, although that seems more a confrontational or incendiary, just just almost by definition, right? But, you know, you can take those steps, um, but, you know, you might get pushback or people might make other economic decisions or or moral decisions based on, you know, their agreement or disagreement with that. Right. And yeah. I think that that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, if we favor a robust first amendment, we favor a marketplace. I think this is less sort of stealthy.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it really struck me that it's like, it's almost like people, uh, the, the people who are making these claims are saying, I want to discriminate and I want it to be convenient yeah, for me. And I don't want to bury any of the costs associated with publicly expressing my discriminatory beliefs and my refusal to recognize some people. Yeah, and and it a, just seems know, like
1: – And there is a cost. I mean there are uh, legal scholars on the conservative end um, who have made the argument that, well, there's really no loss here because the you know the gay lesbian couple can just go down the street to a more you know, amenable bake shop – and I guess I have two answers to that. One is maybe, right? It might depend on where in the country you are and uh what the level of homophilia versus homophobia is, I don't know, but but the second uh piece of that is it 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 completely undervalues the you know whether you want to call it expressive interest which I hope I've shown is kind of elastic enough to you know to sort of apply to almost anything of the same sex couple. Um, and it's a dignitary harm. So, you know, I was thinking about a case where, you know, you've got, uh, a a kid who's just recently out, right. And he goes in, he's got his courage uh, ginned up and he goes into a big shop and he wants some, you know, some cookies to be done, uh, in a certain way for a pride event or something. And the, you know, the big shop owner, you know, turns him down, and you know, maybe says some things that aren't so nice. That's not nothing. You know, that's uh, that's a true cost that's imposed on that you know side of the equation. And I think anything we can do to, you know, people talk a lot about uh, civility, and I think, you know, something along the lines I'm proposing uh, could further that goal. At least that's my Pollyanna. Hope for a Friday. For a Friday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, this issue isn't going anywhere. Um, so, I, I mean, I just wonder, like, in in closing, what do you what do you expect to happen next? Any kind of prognostications yeah.
1: on? So, I guess I'm not optimistic. Um, you know, uh, as I uh, mentioned to you, uh, you know, sort of off air there was a piece in Slate by a legal scholar named Eric Siegel, whom you've had on this uh, podcast before, where he basically said, uh, if the Supreme court gets this case in it's current configuration, um, I mean, the court's current configuration, they are quite likely to side with, uh, I guess I'll say the conscientious objector. Um, and so uh I think the best we can hope for for now is that the Supreme Court kind of keeps its paws off the case doesn't take cert on any of these cases for a while and they can kind of percolate around until somebody gets a hold of my fantastic proposal and and serves it up to all 50 states and everybody lives happily ever after but but uh you know I do think that uh you know one of the uh predictable consequences to the marriage equality victory was this kind of pushback on, on what we might call ancillary issues. And, uh, this is one of them. And I think, uh, you know, there are broader implications. I was on a radio show, uh, I don't know, a few months ago where I was in a discussion with another law professor and I said, you know, the problem, well, sort of a broader problem with it is that uh, there's nothing in this expressive uh, conduct uh, piece that would stop uh, someone like, you know, Jack Phillips from refusing to bake a cake for an interracial wedding. And I said, you know, if these laws protecting people uh, and, you know, and enabling them to obtain services in, in places of public accommodation, you know, if those laws are necessary in the first place, right? Then we shouldn't be slicing and dicing and saying, well, you know, racial discrimination is different, uh, because the law covers all of those categories. And so uh, he was basically just sort of standing on the idea that the court would never allow this if it was racial discrimination. I said, well, that's kind of the point, right? I mean, if they wouldn't allow it in that case, why would they allow it here, when the law is the same, and the You know, harm on both sides is the same. So I'm hoping that um, these things can work themselves out a little bit. Um, But I would say, in closing, the first thing to do is to get laws protecting members of the LGBT community in all 50 states in employment, in public accommodations, uh, you know, in housing. Um, And only about half the states have that so far. So before we can even get to these issues, we first need you know protection of this kind
0: yeah either on a state or a federal level yes I
1: guess. Well, yeah, right federal would be better because it's going to be a while before it happens in oklahoma but but uh yeah i think you know however it happens i would support great
0: well john thanks so much for coming on the program it's been really fun talking to you it's
1: been a great pleasure i think this podcast is a great uh, great service and and uh you know i hope you continue to do it
0: Thank you so much.